welcome to Offwatch, a podcast by the Ocean Race. This week is the chance to talk to those behind the victories, not the sailors, not the skippers, the people that we know so well, but somebody who's designing the boats that they go and win on. Wan K or Wan Kun Yam Jian is a big name in yacht design, having some of the most incredible sailboats penned by his very hand. He went to the same university as me and it was a bit of a pleasure to ask him whether the rumours that I'd heard studying all that time on yacht design were true. Plus, what he thinks about the Amoka 60 and the move to one design for the ocean race. Sailing is an equipment sport and while most victories can rest on the shoulders of the sailors themselves, an awful lot comes down to the design of their yacht. Now, in 2005, the ocean race moved from a 60-foot ballasted boat to a canting keel high-performance VO70. An Argentinian, Juan Cugamjian, was asked to design a boat that could stand up to the rigours of round-the-world sailing. And he went a little bit better than most were predicting. Abrian Amaro won was victorious in the 2005-06 edition of the race, winning with three out of the nine legs remaining. Juan, thank you very much for joining me. Your your designs, and, and we're not just talking about the Ocean Race, the America's Cup, the Amoka, the Admiral's Cup, all the designs that you've done, you, you, you're known for pushing the normal and standing out from the crowd. I'm wondering, is that the natural end of your design process or do you strive to come up with a different design it's a very good question i think that the uh, 20 years ago i would have given you a different answer than today <laughs> but uh, uh i no i think this is part of the passion uh within me and and the people around me to to turn every every stone you know just to look at every bit of um uh, performance that uh, that we can, and uh, and so I suppose that uh, it just comes naturally that uh, that that all the design process that we put together is is related to that is related to to work in a way that allows a system or a method to um, to turn every stone and to try to um, uh, to uh, uh, to the best of our abilities to 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 take as much performance out of the design as possible, and this is why. Sometimes we even uh, very frustrated because uh, very you know very quickly as soon as you're putting the boat in the water you know boat hasn't sailed yet and you're already thinking that you should have done it differently. <laughs> but uh, but but yeah, that happens. I mean, I think it has happened to every single boat that I've done so far. At the moment, you know, that moment when you launch the boat, when the bulb touches or the hull touches the water, you're going, I oof, I would, I could have changed that, you know. <laughs> Do you do you get much opportunity to do that? Where, where does your involvement in these boats finish? As a designer, you say, "There's the lines plan that can go to the to the builder," or do you always get on board and keep tinkering away? No, it, it's uh, it's a very good question. It's a uh, uh, it has been everything. Uh, it depends on the projects, but it has to be said that if there is one characteristic of those that have done well, those have won races. Uh, have a few things in common, and uh, and one of them is the complete sort of dedication and involvement uh, throughout the process. And, and racing boats, particularly the more complicated they are, usually there's a there's a huge amount of performance which is left on the table 
by the you know once once you stop designing and then you go into production and certainly when you go sailing. Uh, so being able to develop the boats properly uh, requires a very good symbiosis with the crew and with the people on the team, and that's another very interesting characteristic we can speak about. Um, but but uh, but there's a lot of performance to be gained. Uh, you know, in the racing, the level of racing nowadays has gone to such a level that uh, you you can't just win it on a drawing board per se. You know? And how do you find that? Because it's interesting you mentioned the crew. That was something I wanted to discuss with you because from where I am looking at the teams, more and more you see the sailors with a aeronautics background or a degree in engineering something that might enable them to communicate with yourself or the design team uh and actually feedback that information do you do you ever get into those situations where you have to sort of ah oh, you can't you can't talk my language and i'm guessing when they can talk your language it's easy um i i certainly can confirm that when they can talk your language uh, it's a lot easier, and this works both ways. And by the way, uh, that the designer needs to understand something about sailing. It's not only in one direction. Um, but I would say that uh, I would say that lack of being able to speak the same languages or to find a medium of communication is almost a recipe for disaster. I think at the, at the level that we're talking about, you nobody would ever get to the pinnacle, if you will. Uh, if you if both ends don't sort of merge in a in together, uh, without this merge, I, I don't believe anymore it's possible. Uh, like a designer coming out with a design that is given to a bunch of guys that never met, and then those bunch of guys would just go and win a race. The designer cannot be good enough to do that. No, the sailors can be good enough to do that. You have to you have to symbiose, and that is the recipe of of, of a winning program, you know, and um, and that, but that that touches very interesting aspects, which are the human aspects, the way you relate, and uh, you see this throughout our um, sport, but also in other sports, you know, like when you, um, like in the Volvo Ocean Race, uh, America's Cup. Let's just do the example of our industry or world, which is uh, let's say the Volvo, the, the the Ocean Race, and the America's Cup. Every team, you would say that every team, if not most of the teams competing, are good enough. The sailors are good enough, and the engineers and the and the designers are good enough to win the race. But there's only one winner at the end. So what what is that person? How what is that team having common? Usually, is that they manage to sort out their human aspect, the human size, and they they manage to um, go beyond individual knowledges, intelligences, and experiences. Look at Formula One, you know, would you say that the Ferrari engineers or the McLaren engineers are bad engineers, that they are silly, <laughs> or the Red Bull guys are stupid compared to Mercedes? No, they're all, they're all really clever guys. But one thing makes a difference. And that difference, usually you find it in the little intrinsicalities and the little things that make people work together properly. And that's what what is happening at the top of our sport. You know, you need to... You need to um, give room for that to gel, to merge, and to work together. Individual knowledges and intelligence are not good enough any, anymore. <laughs> so where did your, like you say, 
sailors got to be able to talk the design language. Designers got to be able to talk the sailors language. I know that you did a lot of sailing. I'm wondering, were you someone who decided to walk down the design route, uh, go to the United Kingdom, get a degree in design? Did you design? Did, did you decide to do that because it was a good way to continue sailing? Or was it that you were just so interested in the physics and the numbers and sailing was a good fit? Yeah, it was a bit of both, I think. Um, I think it was just continuing with a passion that's been with me throughout my... I mean, I knew I was going to do this when I was five or six. You know, so <laughs> it's, not, it's not like I ever had a doubt or anything. Uh, sometimes I, I meet and cross people and tell me, well, you don't, you don't realize how lucky you are to, to have been so clear and sort of have done whatever you wanted uh, throughout your life. And, and you don't really realize... Uh, how lucky that is until you you see other people not necessarily having gone through the same um, path or you know struggling not necessarily doing bad their job but just not really enjoying it and that uh, that just puts the contrast but but I think that the um, uh, that passion is 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 very important I don't understand how at this level you could design a very good boat a very fast boat if you're not able to understand the sailing side of it. And the same way we were talking earlier, I don't understand how a good sailor can actually get to that level if he, does, if he doesn't really understand the other side. I mean, there is a, Avian Ambro, you were mentioning Avian Ambro, that, that was exactly what happened. You know, it, uh, it was a new class, it was a brand new sheet of paper. I was young, I mean, they, they gave me, <laughs> here's, here's a, you know, do it. <laughs> here's a bunch of money for you to, you know, go have fun. I mean, it wasn't like that, but uh, <laughs> kind, kind of. Um, and uh, and so it, it could have ended up in a disaster. Uh, why didn't it end up in a disaster? Well, because there were also other people there, particularly the crew and Mike Sanderson and, and Brad and Brad um, uh, and uh, Brad Jackson and Tony Matter. And I mean, I, I, I don't want to forget anybody, but uh, people that. Uh, that were able to, I was able to talk to, and uh, often they would say, "No, man, you, you, you're mad. Stop, uh, stop smoking. Whatever you're smoking, let's come back to planet Earth." And but, but at the same time, you know, I was, I was also pushing them to think a bit differently, and 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 you know what I mean. We were sort of pushing each other, and um, and and so when when there is enough experience and enough talent on both sides, then the whole thing gels into a higher level, which is the key of success. Right. I, I want to get into Adrian Amro 1. Um, but I want to go somewhere else just before I do. And this is just a complete personal indulgement. Um, so you went, if I've got this right, you went to Southampton Institute and you studied yacht and powercraft design. Okay. Now, I went to Southampton Institute and I studied yacht and powercraft design and your name back then, and we're talking 2001 to 2005, your name then was a little bit legendary in the corridors. And there was all sorts of rumours, and I really mean this, this is absolutely true, there's all sorts of rumours about you only did the first year and then you quit because you, you, you were teaching the lecturers and you were, I know everything, I'm going to leave. Um, my time... Uh, being at university and studying well, sailing, basically, was that any day there was a nice breeze or there was nice sun, there were only two people in the lecture, everybody else was out sailing. 
with that kind of environment, with so many people, as you say, so passionate about the sport, what was your attendance like? Did you, were you mostly learning on the water or in the classroom? Well, I was trying to learn from both, and I did learn from both. <laughs> but, uh, but it's true that, I don't know if it happened with you, but at my time, they would reduce they would reduce the grades or the marks, be the attendance. They would correct the... And my, uh, my <laughs> corrections were pretty let's say, drop down quite a bit from my <laughs> low level of attendance. So that was a struggle because, you know, anyway, I mean, I don't know what kind of uh, uh, myth or whatever you have heard, but uh, yeah, my, my level of attendance was not good. I have to confess that. No, that that's great. That makes me feel a lot better about, about mine. Um, the reason that I wanted to bring that up was because, so ABN Emirate, 2005, this is the VO70s. And there was, at that time, so much buzz about these boats. And for me, you know, at the last little bit of university and everyone was talking about what they might be like, and then the boats start coming out. And we've got these huge step changes with very hard chines. You know that these boats are going to be planing most of the time. You know that there's going to be so much performance. How exciting was it for you to be working on a boat that you knew wasn't just going to be better than the 60s. It was going to be something so far beyond. Well, it, it was, of course, like a kid in a candy store for me. But, uh, <laughs> but, but I have to say that uh, the levels of comfort that I went through, miscomforts as well, but, but I was very comfortable because I was given the means to study things properly. And this is where uh, Roy Heiner was very, very good. Because, I mean, at that time, I was, yeah, I, met, I knew him and I met him sailing starboats. And, uh, you know, uh, so from more the sailing scene, at the time I was working with Oracle, uh, BMW Oracle on the America's Cup. So, you know, I was, I was already playing with pretty cool tools, but, uh, but I haven't been given the... I haven't been given the uh, you know the, the big project yet, and and so and he did, and uh, I remember we we had a, a meeting at the top end of the Avian Ambro um, sort of board meeting at the top of the building in Amsterdam, where uh, the whole uh, board of the of the I don't know there were like probably fifteen people there or something, and uh, so uh, after they finished their meeting, I sort of walked in and and we were waiting down in the lobby with Roy, so I walked in and uh, as soon as I walked in to sort of be introduced to these guys. Um, the chairman basically says, uh, all right, well, so uh, why should we choose you? Why, uh, <laughs> like he throw me, and uh, why, why, are we, why are we going to win this race with you? And, you know, I was fairly prepared. I said, look, you know, this is my approach. This is my method. This is the way I would like to attack this new problem. Because at this time, the Volvo 70s were a brand new thing, you know, counting kills and all that for the, for the race. And so I, I gave him my description of, how I wanted to uh, do this, and you know the technologies that we have been developing, uh, particularly in the America's Cup, that I wanted to take to the World Ocean Race, and you know how technological I wanted the thing to be, and um, and you know it was a very quick deal. You know, immediately or very quickly, within a few minutes, they they uh, they understood that uh, that the approach, at least I was proposing was a very, uh, let's say analytical science-based approach. And, and so they said, off you go, you know, go and win this race. And, uh, so to answer your question, 
I was very comfortable because I was given the means to be comfortable, if you know what I mean. And, um, but that is very important because um, the, I can imagine, not only because it was a first project, big project for me, but I can imagine even somebody who experienced, you know, I, I'm fairly experienced now, uh, and even facing uh, same situations, uh, not given the means to do the property, even now with all the experience that I have or other people have, is you certainly can, can feel um, daunted by the problem, you know, because in, in our world of, of yachting, we, we, are, we are quite crazy. I mean, when, when you look at what we do, no, but this is actually quite interesting, because when you look at what we do from an aeronautical point of view, um, aerospace point of view, we're completely mad, you know. You go to any aeronautical guy and you say, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this thing that's going to go around the world, you know, with all these load cases, which are, you know, pretty high load cases with some people on board, uh, and this is going to be like a fuselage in steroids. And, uh, and by the way, we don't have time to do much testing at all. We're just going to build this thing. And the first thing, we, the first thing that comes out to the yard, we're just going to launch it. And a few months later, when these guys go around the world, they, they think you're mad. You know, if you go with a problem to any aerospace or nautical environment, they would want three or four times the budget and probably twice the time to accomplish the same thing. Uh, but but yet we are we are what we are and we are who we are and, and we find ourselves doing these extraordinary things uh, in in record times and 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 with with very big constraints uh, sometimes in budgetary constraints um, which are only which only makes sense because of the passion that is behind it the passion of everybody involved you know otherwise you why would you you'd be mad Some, sometimes you don't even make money out of it you know so there's absolutely no reason why you would why you do it but yet we do it and and uh, it's almost like a masochistic thing. That, yeah, what's give me the next project? You know, I'm really looking forward to the next round of world race. And um, and so it, there's something about it. Uh, I'm probably very biased in my point of view, but there's something about it that makes us not only us or me designers, it's the sailors as well that that really wanting to to do it again and to and next time you would you would push it to another level and uh, and. Uh, and you know you don't want to make the same mistakes that you made last time, and you keep sort of polishing your game. Um, but if you look at it from a from a pure engineering uh, point of view, which is how the aeronautical industry, aerospace industry, will look at it, we're just completely mad. Just have to give me one second. I've just got to turn my jumper off. I am so hot. I've underestimated how warm it will be when I get my studio lights on. So it, it, it's interesting hearing you talk about that in a way that um, I remember looking at the design of boats and you have to design a boat very close to the limit. Like you say, you don't really get a chance to test and you really have to get it right on the money. Whereas if you're designing a building or if you're designing a bridge, you can put in these huge factor of safeties. Did you, um, does that weigh on you? The real life aspect that you are making something which has got to take people through an area which is very dangerous. It's terrible. Um, back back in the day, uh, particularly that uh, first race with Avi Nambro, it was it was daunting. Uh, yeah, I just couldn't sleep. Whenever they were out there, and I knew they were, you know they were not in friendly weather, I just I just couldn't sleep. Um, I remember the. Um, the first night, actually, the first night after the start, they had a pretty bad uh, that night. Actually, a few boats had to come back and, and 
Pirates of the Caribbean had to be uh, flown to Cape Town. Um, that was a pretty bad night. They had a fire. I remember had a fire on board, which yeah, yeah they, which they had never had a fire, an electrical, an electrical fire. I mean, it was, it, it's, it's this, um, Mur the the ocean race is the perfect scenario for Murphy's Law to apply in its fullest form, and 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 it does. As soon as you give it a chance, it will. And uh, like in the Southern Ocean, we had a, a little bit of a structural issue. It wasn't a major one, but you know, visually it was a major. That uh, one of the forward uh, longitudinals in the bow was uh, sort of detached from the hull, which we have never seen in in months of sailing. And I remember I had um, Dave Inden, uh, uh, that was a, a really good crew and very good with composites and all that. He he was. Uh, he was on the satellite phone saying, trying to describe to me <laughs> the problem. <laughs> I was saying to him, uh, well, is it moving? And he said to me, well, it depends on where on the wave are you. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, right now it's not, but uh, a few seconds later, depending, because they were jumping these waves, this thing was separating from the bottom of the heart. And so we came out with a plan to fix it, and it was okay. Then they, they kept on going to Australia. But... Um, but you know, you find yourself in the in the Southern Ocean uh, with I don't know how many miles each side of the boat and a piece of structure which is moving and it's, it's obviously not nice for them. And but but it's also not nice for for me or whoever is involved in, when you are you know in the safety of your house. But so no, to answer your question is 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 very very hard and uh, and uh, it's it's the ugliest part of what I do. But but nonetheless is. It's it's part it's part of the job, you know. I suppose because you mentioned Pirates of the Caribbean, um, and if memory serves, Movistar um, also had I think kill problems. Ericsson, I think, was they dismasted on leg two? I think there was a whole bunch, and I, I, I'm wondering if you're watching Abin Amro one. Obviously, it's performing well on the water. You're getting the speeds out of it as the race tick on. And you see more and more of the boats having structural or design issues. Do you start to feel more confident? Oh, well, we've made it 50% of the way round, 75%. Or do you think, you know, it's it's going to be our turn next? No, but if you do, if you if you have the means to do a job properly, both hydroaerodynamically and structurally, your level of confidence and safety. Uh, is 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 high and 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 even if you have an issue, you have enough information, enough intelligence to quickly address it and understand it. You're not you're not in the blind, you know. <clears throat> so that is very important. But but the problems are are daunting, uh, nonetheless, you know. And uh, and um, they need to be taken care. Uh, there's lives at stake. I mean, look at you were mentioning that uh, first race, but. Uh, uh, at the end of the race, the the the, the leg between America and, and Portsmouth, where actually uh, ABN one won the race, and the arrival in Portsmouth was the leg with Hans Hans fell overboard, you know. So it's incredibly sweet and sour, if you will. I remember I was I was in the Solent in a uh, in a in a, in a, in a zodiac in a dinghy, waiting for ABN Amro to arrive. It was like midnight. It was really late. And and so they were they were going they were winning the leg and therefore winning the race in Portsmouth and sort of four of them 
with uh, throughout the all the soldiers, you know, from Leamington all the way to Portsmouth, follow them with a with a rib in order to be with them, and it was an incredible joy for them, but for me as well. But but a day behind, there was a completely different story, you know, and and the, the, the and then the, the other AV number boat was coming with the crew of Telefonic on board and and Hans's body. Uh, you know, it's it's, it's terrible. Uh, and the, but that's what this race is about. You know, it's, it's, it pushes the emotions and the feelings to such levels uh, that uh, I think it's difficult to explain. It's funny because be, before I, I started doing this Run the World race, uh, through the America's Cup, particularly with John Kosteki and other people that have done it, they mentioned it, you know, said, uh, you know, such highs and such lows. But then you only remember the highs, and <laughs> you know, you you hear all these things, but you don't really understand what they mean until you go through it. And um, and this why this is why it's such an extraordinary race. You know, it's just that it pushes the human element in every every human element uh, to 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 the limit. Well, for you, obviously, with ABN Amaro one, obviously at the time the victory, as you described, a bit muted, but it was an incredible accomplishment um what you'd done you had abrian amaro one you had abrian amaro two which if i've got this right abrian amaro two was sort of the first iteration of a design and then abrian amaro one was something that you could tweak um but then for the next two editions you're you're spread across multiple campaigns uh so in the next one you've got ericsson four you've got what was that like in terms of uh, I, I've now got to look after uh, you know a few different boats a few different crews well the, the following one we did with Ericsson we only did it with Ericsson and it was a very very good campaign it was very well managed uh, we had some uh, rule issues which we sort of had to deal with but you know let's, let's just leave that in the past <laughs> um, but it was it was a, it was a very good campaign. But it was a campaign where where uh, I was and my team we were fully dedicated to the project. So it, it was very very good, very good crew as well. Um, but then the following one, the one the the last one we did was with uh, with Grupama, with Grupama, Telefonica, and Puma. Yeah. And uh, and that was very very hard. And um, and uh, I I personally. If I had the choice not to do it that way, I would. Uh, but we were kind of forced by the organization to to do it that way because having won the pre prior two, I mean, I don't know if we can speak about this, but we can yeah. do it. Do it. Um, so basically, what what they were facing is that they were there were potential entries that would only entry if we designed the boat, and so. Uh, they were conditioning the entry to our design. And so because we were going to work in an exclusive basis again, because that's how I felt more comfortable, uh, for the organization, it was very daunting to have all this pressure and potentially not having entries simply because they we couldn't design their boats. Uh, so uh, the pressure started uh, during the race uh, and at the at the prize giving in St. Petersburg, I remember it was uh, 2010 or whenever it was. Uh, Ericsson 809. 809. Okay, so there, by the time we got to the um, to the prize giving, it was it was obvious that uh, we were under a lot of pressure to 
to change. And uh, to the point that they basically said to us, if you don't change, if you if you don't change it, we just put it in the rules. So they basically said, um, you know, do it because otherwise we'll force you to do it. And uh, and so that's when we we had a bit of a brainstorm in the office because we didn't really know what what it meant, you know. And uh, so we structure ourselves. Uh, we basically acknowledge ourselves that we weren't um, structured within the office to to do uh, different projects. So we went through a very, very big uh, internal brainstorm and questioning about our structure to do it. And so what we did is um, we divided the office into uh, the three teams that we were going to work with. Um, and we then divided in what was the R&D and the actual um, structure of an executive work for every team. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to go into a, a, a sort of design phases where the one that paid more had the best. I really didn't want to do that. So what I proposed to the three teams is that I was going to take care of the R&D program uh, with, with, with a team of really clever guys. And I was just going to go for it. I, was, I said, this is my program, which is more or less tailored to what we believe is the, the good times for building the boat. Um, but uh, so I'm going to go for it. And then you guys tell me when you want to build your boats. And at the time, you want to build your boat, we'll give you the best we know at that time. Uh, of course, then it becomes complex because it's the best for what, you know? And then uh, some people wanted it, uh, some trends more towards a reaching boat. Some others said, well, yeah, but I don't want to neglect the upwind performance. So then you need to tailor it a little bit. But, but you know... Is that, I'm, I'm wondering... Does that make it easier for you? Because you almost don't want to produce three identical boats. So the fact that the client is saying, I want something a little different, I'm imagining might be a bit of a relief. Yeah, well, it's a relief, but also it's a good way of working because the way the way I do it is I put um, a lot of uh, intelligence, if you will, on the table and some simulations. And we did a lot of uh, routings for each different leg and all that. But then, and, and, and then with that, follow the series of recommendations. But the way we managed that is I, I, I sort of was putting the teams on the, on the spot in a way. But, but all these teams, I mean, one was uh, very much managed by Frank Hamas. The other one was um, Kenny Reed with uh, Tony Matter and um, Brad Jackson. The other one was Iker with uh, Xavi Fernandez. I mean, these guys, they, they know exactly what they want. You know, it's not like, <laughs> it's not like you... It's not like you, they, you know, they they listen to you, and 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 maybe you manage to to shift a little bit what they want, but they know exactly what they want. So that makes it very easy. Uh, but nonetheless, what I didn't want is is them to to be missing a a development slot, you know. So uh, by the end of the time, when it came to, when the when the time came to 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 build the boats. The discussion was well. If we wait one more month or two more months, uh, you know, what what is it that we're going to be researching? Um, and uh, and in that way, uh, tailor it. But but I didn't want to basically say, oh, this is the upwind package and this is the reaching <laughs> package. And I, I just kind of work that. But then, so that was on the R and D side. And then on the each team has had a group of of three or four uh, engineers and draftsmen. Which they all they develop their own deck layouts, their own interiors, and their their own uh, you know uh, um, daggerboard systems, and so everything was multiplied by three or four, you know, and uh, and and so 
I think we managed it. We managed it uh, okay. It was it was really really uh, a lot of work. But what I what I generally didn't like about that approach, it, it is understandable. But but what I didn't like is I I was not belonging to any of the three teams hmm. because each team was kind of um, how do you say uh, fearful that in because I was the only one that was very much involved in the three projects. Uh, they were fearful that through me there was some sort of leakage, and they, they were very much relieved in the way we dealt with the, uh, the, the, the the servers and software and the and the codes on it. You know, every drawing had a different code, and so I think that there's a certain extent that that they they were trustful. But but you know, these guys are competing and either. So I became the unwanted friend kind of thing, you know, and uh, and that uh, that really. Um, that really uh, bugged me quite a bit. I mean, of course, after the race, we, we have great relationships with all of them, even though only one won. Like you say, you were successful again. Um, all three of those boats were quick. One of them very quick, Group Armour 4. Um, so, so now we have three editions of the Ocean Race with the VO70s, and you your boat was at the top of the podium on every single one. Even in the editions... Uh, even if you take out the fact that your boats won, your boats were winning all the legs, pretty much. I mean, sort of 80% of the legs were won by, you know, uh, one yacht design boats. Um, so then let's go to the 65. How was that moment when you were really making a name for yourself? You were, as you say, you were the guy to the point where the organisers were forcing you to work with multiple teams. And then the announcement is we're going to go to a one design boat and we're going to, for you know, good reasons on their own, remove the design element. What was that like for you? Well, it was a disappointment uh, for sure uh, because I could understand the, the reasons um, why they did it. I didn't share them. I mean, my position was that I didn't want to do uh, one design. I, didn't, I don't think the highest level of our sport should be one design. I mean, I think that there are areas in a sport which are okay to be one design. There are plenty of, you know, more amateur-related sailing where, where it should be one design. But uh, but at the at the pinnacle of our sport, uh, whether it is, and there are three pinnacles in our sport, which is the uh, offshore, uh, the America's Cup, and the Olympics. Uh, and at the pinnacle of our sport, uh, we sh- it should not be one design because because Sailor, what defines a sailor is it capacity. I mean, sailing is a, an, an, an equipment-based sport. You cannot go sailing without a piece of equipment. So the, the symbiosis and the relationship between a sailor and its equipment is fundamental, is part of who we are as sailors. We cannot remove that. And this wish to remove it uh, on the notion of one design makes no sense to me. Uh, particularly that it does is not true that it ends up costing less and all that. I mean, there are arguments for some savings, but not in the essence of the one design. In fact, if you look at the Olympic classes, which are one design, um, you know, the budgets are spent equally of no more. It's just that they spend it on little millimetric things that make almost no difference. But anyway, going back to your question. So it was a disappointment because I, I, I fundamentally don't believe that one of the three pinnacles of our sport should be one design. 
but I was understanding that uh, you know there was a, a crisis, um, uh, and uh, you know they were the, the vision was that it was a struggle to get to a lot of teams and so forth, um, and uh, and and also particularly is that there was a timing issue. You know, with the Volvo Ocean Race, uh, the most precious thing is time, and uh, and uh, there's always been teams which are interested enough and financed enough to eventually do the race, but too late, you know? And, and so I think that from that point of view, the vision of the organizers to basically have a solution for a late entry to be competitive is smart, is clever, but it kills the essence. But um, so when, when, when I was faced with that problem, um, when Knut Frost came to see me in Valencia uh, with that problem, uh, I basically said uh, that I was against the one design, that I wasn't going to do a one design. Um, but I suggested that we do a freeze design, a frozen design. I basically said, let's, let's, uh, uh, let's, what, you know, but at that time we had, um, you know, all this, the, the Puma, the Ericsson, the, sorry, the uh, Groupama and the Telefonica designs, which were the three latest plus the previous ones. Um, and I said, okay, let's freeze them. So if you want to reduce the uh, R&D cost and all that, let's just say that you pick, you pick the we, all designers put designs on the table. You know, and Marcelino would put his design, and and everybody else uh, would put their design. And then, and then, so we don't charge for R&D. There will be some minimum work to be done, uh, and each team will pick whichever uh, whichever package they want. So we 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 would eliminate. We don't do it at one design, but we we would eliminate uh, a lot of the R and D cost. And then you know if the economy comes back and, and it's so good, then next time we come crazy again. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, but he didn't. I think he considered it. I mean that's a question you should ask him. I think he actually considered it, uh, but but he didn't accepted it he didn't go for it well the 65s for better or worse came in they've made an impression and they're here for another edition but this brings us on to the imokas so if you are a avid fan of the ocean race or of the volvo ocean race um the imokas will be potentially a little bit new but they're not new boats and they've been going through an awful lot of design iterations so i want to ask you about that but before i do we need to talk about the foils. And I want to ask you about something that I found in an interview of yours. I think it was back in 2018. Uh, no, longer, 2016, I think it was. And you were talking about the America's Cup. And one of the things that people always say to justify the vast sums of money that go into the America's Cup is something will be designed and it will make its way down the sport and then everyone can enjoy it but you were giving the impression that you didn't think that foiling was going to come down. It wasn't really the, the right step for the America's Cup. And apologies if I've got that wrong, but I'm wondering now, what is your opinion of foils, foiling technology? What we see in the America's Cup is one thing, but we're starting to see a lot of work for boats that are using foils, maybe not to fly, but more and more. Yeah, I mean, it depends how you measure the trickle down. Uh, I, I remain of the opinion that it hasn't trickled down and it won't. Um, and simply because the, the, the normal sailing, and by normal, 
I mean, the images that you see with the flying moths or the America's Cup or even the Imocas, that's not normal. You know? that's, <laughs> that's a different world. So, but if we're talking about the people that sail with the passion of sailing and uh, they do that uh, regularly, call it every weekend, and you know they enjoy their way of sailing, um, they do that within an environment that just foiling is not, it's not part of that environment. I would even argue that they will not enjoy it, you know, um, if even if they would uh, be able to put a very heavy boat on foils, which by the time that you foil such a heavy boat, you would not necessarily be quicker. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, um, so, you know, it is amazing. Foiling is, uh, uh, but, but, but you made a very interesting distinction, which is the difference between flying and foiling. Uh, so, I was referring to flying per se, you know, and then the notion of basically flying above the water. That is something that is a very specific niche that, um, that even with very sophisticated um, flying uh, software and uh, autopilots, it would be accessible to whoever that, that, that wants to go that way. But, 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 but in order to be efficient, it conditions your vessel to be of a, not heavier than a certain weight and mm. specific. So, you know, you can't go cruising uh, in, a, in a fairly decent budget uh, and do it flying. That's just not going to happen, right? So, but then that, but, but it does open the door to a lot of sailing, which can be done flying uh, from a dinghy to, to anything to a very light uh, uh, multi-hole, if you will, which... Uh, might satisfy a series of people that they want to go through that experience. Uh, it's just that, in my view, the quantity of those people is very small. There are not many. I mean, there are some, and great. I, mean, I, I would be one. <laughs> but in the big scheme of things, there are many. You know? uh, so we should, um, we should definitely approach flying uh, with the enthusiasm and respect that it deserves, but we should be very careful to not fall in the trap that if you're not flying, you're not sailing anymore. You know, there is room, there is room for everybody and for everything. And, uh, and, and those two types of, 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 of sailing uh, sort of can complement each other. And there's always a little bit of trickle down that happens here or there, but, but, but it's very limited. And uh, those that think that because uh, boats have been, racing boats have been flying uh, for the last, I mean, they've been flying for a long time, but, you know, you know what happens in San Francisco in the last 10 years or so, uh, you know, there's been a bit of a buzz on it. Those that think that that buzz will basically transform and go down into their 20-ton uh, cruising boat and they will be sort of, uh, you know, go around uh, the bay uh, flying, uh, sipping gin and tonics. Mm -mm. <laughs> It's not going to happen. So then let's talk about not flying, but foiling. So now we're at the Amokas. This is what we're going to see in the next edition of the Ocean Race. Um, what are we likely as fans? We've seen the 65s for the last two editions. We know what they've delivered. Unbelievably close racing. Boats that have been so nervous about splitting more than half a mile. It's just nip and tuck. When we watch the next edition of the race with these foil assisting Imokas, what's the racing going to be like? 
Uh, I think it's going to be more dynamic. Um, first of all, I think that the boats are going to be, each boat is going to have its moment. I mean, I think that it's very difficult to, at least in, in, in this first edition, to converge to a solution that sort of uh, uh, everybody would be equally fast all the time. You know, some some boats will be good in some conditions and some others in others. So I think that the level of the, the strategy and the navigation that the crews will do will take that into account. Is that is that more to do with the foils than, than an ordinary boat? You know, you, you sort of have to make the foils work for a, a, a limited range of speed and conditions. We're going to be faster at this angle, we're going to be faster at that angle, more so than some sails or some hull designs. Foils kind of force you there. Well, I mean, foils force you to make choices, very specific choices. And, and so uh, you cannot design a, 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 a foil or a foil-assisted Imoca to be uh, with the same degree of hydrodynamic efficiency in uh, six knots upwind and 30 knots downwind. Uh, each sailing range, I mean, if you, if you divide the spectrum of wind speed and wind angle into, into areas, each area would require a specific foil. So unless all the crews uh, decide to basically put the eggs in the same basket <laughs> and all the designers have the same tools and the same uh, dreams every night that they sleep, then the possibility of such a close convergence is, is very is very difficult. So they will be close, but but I think boats would have uh, their own little moments, and we see that today. You know, uh, uh, some sixties go well in some conditions and not so well in others, and vice versa. Um, so that's what I meant. Uh, but 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 also because of the the speeds that these things are getting to, which is kind of scary. Um, they. Um, uh, they, that would also uh, make them um, have big deltas every now and again. So now, nowadays, you know, in, in the 65 race, uh, if somebody was uh, 20 miles ahead of you, you know, you you will struggle to win that leg. Uh, today, in an Imoca, in a, in a foiling Imoca 60, 20 miles is, uh, you know, it's just a question of, you know, maybe maybe you in a couple of hours you gain it, you know, it, so. It's a it's a different world, uh, and it conditions the way the sailors will go about it. And answer me this, because this is something that this is the limit of. This was obviously the lesson that I skipped at university. I can do the force diagram for foils, foil assisted, you know, all of that. I've got it. Then you take it down into the Southern Ocean. You take it through some big rough sea states. At what point, or is there a point, that the sailors are going to wish, you know what, I wish I didn't have these foils. You know, I, I, this is too much. Yeah, and uh, what the question you just asked, uh, at least myself, but I'm pretty certain that every other team and every other designer involved in the Imoca uh, design world right now hasn't got a, has got the, we have the question, we haven't got the precise answer. We will, we will know in this one day globe. Uh, but from a, if you analyze it from a very um, uh, objective physical point of view, at the end of the day, you have a 60 foot piece that you need to fit within a 
system, a wave train system. And that wave train system hasn't changed. I mean, it's, it's been like that for years. And we know that down there, you know, the waves, they will travel between 23 and 25 knots and that they will be uh, so many meters apart and they will be between uh, three and six meters high. And, and in there, you need to fit a fuselage that has foils. Now, you say, okay, can you make it fly? Um, can you make a 60-foot fit in this system high enough to be above it? The answer is no. We know that already. Um, hardly uh, ultim, you know, the ultim hundreds or 105 footers, which are, you know, the ultims hardly fit in that event. So, you know, the Imoga 60, they just don't fit. Um, so, um, and, and of course, creating foils which make you fly that high, it's completely unrealistic because, um, you know, the, 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 the structural weight that you have to put on these things, it would defeat the purpose. So you end up in, in a very distant world between the, call it flat water sailing on Imoka 60 and the um, sea state affected sailing. And it's completely different. To give you an idea, and this is, this is, I knew that this was the case, I just didn't know to which extent it was the case. This is something I've been learning in the last few months. But to give you an idea, uh, last time I sailed was a month ago with Arkea Paprek. We went out uh, uh, 300 miles offshore or something to, to, to come back downwind with the front. Uh, about 20 knots of wind, then, we, we, then it picked up a bit more. But, but um, So we were VMGing downwind, and in one of the tacks, uh, we were sort of um, oblique to the waves. We were comfortable on the waves, and in the other tack, we were kind of aligned in the waves. The boat configuration, the wind was the same, you know, same wind direction, same wind speed. But the, 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 where you put the stacking, what you do with the rifts and the sails, and where you put the ballast in both those stacks were miles apart. I mean, way more than what I thought the difference were going to be. Um, so, and that's just... That's just everything the same, except that there's the alignment of a wave train, which wasn't necessarily like the south, uh, the Southern Ocean. So yes, these boats will be extremely affected by the sea state. The more downwind that you go, the more that is the case. And, uh, and, uh, and we don't know, at least I don't know, and I, I would like to guess that no other um, designer or skipper involved in these new boats knows for certain, to which extent this will be the case, but but for sure it will be the case, and uh, and uh, there's a lot of unknowns uh, to that. And uh, yes, I am pretty certain that even before they get to the Southern Ocean, a lot of them will be wishing that they didn't have the forest. Yes. Right. I'm going to brush up. I'm going to find a sea state prediction model because it sounds like the size and the orientation to the breeze of the sea state is something that's going to be critical. Uh, more than the wind. So I'm prepared. I'm not an expert, but I'm happy to be wrong, but I'm prepared to, I'm, pre I'm prepared to bet to you that in the, during the navigation of the next around the world race, ocean race, the wave files will be as important or more important than the uh, weather files in the, um, in the um, uh, navigation, um, how do you call the prediction? Not the predictions. The um, yeah, the, the computations. I think that I think that 
waves impact the boat in, in, in terms of performance. You can have a performance of the boat impacted by anything between, for the same wind speed, anything between five and seven knots of boat speed by the waves. Whether, whether you know, the wind speed you would need uh, probably as much wind speed different to, to create the same difference. So um, if I'll be navigating a, a new Imoga 60, I'll be very, very keen to have as good, if not better, wave data from my competitor. Right, that's fascinating. And and that that brings me on to a question that I wanted to ask you. Um, uh, that, Like you say, all these simulations, the data, and from a design point of view, um, obviously, back at our um, old university, oh, well, Polytechnic back then, um, <laughs> yeah, the uh, there was the old wave tank, the, the the small tow tank down below in the cellar, and you know, which it was we fascinating. Use for, which we use for ABN Amra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, there we go. And I, you know, as a student, I remember when we were told you can't come to the wave tank today, can't come to the tow tank, and you knew, oh, that means. Team Origin or someone's in there. So we peek through the windows and sort of try and get a little bit of a look. Um, but you talk about this computational model, yes, for navigation, but obviously with design, it's gone so much the way of the computers. And in this latest iteration of the America's Cup, the sailors are virtually training with their, with their goggles on, even in different countries. They're still able to sort of sail the boats. How much... How important is it for you to still make a model, put it in a water, put it in a wind tank, or is it all just clicks of a button? Well, no, the, the, the fact that in the, in the digital world you can simulate things at the full scale, one-to-one, -one, makes it uh, a lot, and, and the fact that computers are now so fast makes it a lot more uh, interesting and precise to do it that way. Uh, but, but nonetheless, every now and again, you need to sort of uh, the zero scale. You know, you need to sort of uh, uh, reference because you could with the digital world, you could uh, you could sort of tangent yourself into oblivion if you want. So, so you need to uh, you know put some benchmarks and references every now and again. And the, and the tank and the wind tunnel are very useful for that. So. Uh, it's still it's still an interesting tool, but 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 uh, by no if you had to choose, uh, by no means you would you would go to the tank uh, nowadays. Um, but uh, but the predictions are really tricky. I mean the the predictions on a fully flying boat. I mean it, it maybe what I'm going to say sounds uh, weird, but uh, are easier than in 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 a boat such as the Imoka that flirts with that transition. So you know when you, when you're simulating a fully flying boat, which basically depends on on, on a mass, central gravity, uh, inertia spectrum, uh, but also two tiny little foils that are basically creating all the hydrodynamic forces and moments. To simulate those forces and moments are is quite easy, and uh, it's actually I'm not saying it's it's an easy task, but, but you know there's a lot of people in. In this planet, I can do it properly. <laughs> um, but, but the problem of the Imoka 60, because they basically deal with um, they deal with that um, sort of transition where they're skimming and they're also flying, but they're they're flying in a in a non-equilibrated way. They don't have a flight control. So there's things you need to do in order to make them more stable than not. Uh, you know. 
on the non-stable side, you have boats that do a lot of wheelies and, you know, they just come up and down all the time. And then on the, on the stable side, you have boats that take off and then they gently come into from the transom down and they bounce in the transom, they come up again and they fly. You pray to God that they don't do the other way around and the bow goes down because then that's a different story. But, but you know, so you have to play with this transition of flows uh, with, uh, without a specific control. Uh, and where the inertial spectrum of the boat and the distribution of masses is is is, is very important, and and that is extremely complex. I would even suggest, again, to the risk of being proven wrong, that the design of an Imoca 60 right now is probably as complex or the most complex problem that a yacht designer can face, much more than a pure flying boat. Uh, so. That makes it fascinating, you know, because you're playing with the the essence of of of, uh, of all these phenomena, both hydrodynamic and aerodynamic. But 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 you you have a, an extra dimension, which is one that it wasn't that important in the past, which is the emotions, the dynamics, the inertial spectrum. And to give you an idea, you know, when you're going uh, sailing, when you're sailing the Zimocast and you're going downwind, and you you you, you sort of dependent on a wave spectrum and and you want to have the bow very high on the water, uh, you know, you're trying to bring a lot of the mass of the boat further back on the boat, and you bring, you know, you, you use the aft ballast and all that. And, but when you're flying, um, you're almost doing the opposite. Sometimes you, you know, you, not sometimes, you actually, by, by, by separating the waves and having uh, masses which are further apart from each other, you, you sort of uh, provide a, a longitudinal stability by that inertia, which is what makes the boat fly better within a context of a, of, a, of a piece that hasn't been designed to fly because there's nobody nobody has a joystick you know and um, and so that is very intrinsic of the uh, of the Imoca 60s and uh, some would say that they, it makes them old-fashioned and awkward for that purpose because they say well if you're going to go fly well just you know use a joystick <laughs> um, but but I find a lot of satisfaction in the in having to deal with that complexity of not having the joystick, if you know what I mean. Now, there's a few people or there's some trends that basically say, let's just put these elevators in the rudders and let's put the joystick for the next race or whatever. And, uh, you know, I have mi mixed feelings on that because it's very easy to get excited about that because the boats will be quicker and, you know, and you'll be often... Uh, more often above the water. But I think that the levels of complexity to do that properly and you know the, 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 the software and autopilot that you need to develop, um, I am concerned about that because, because I know that the team that will be able to develop that better, and we're talking about uh, autopilots and electro-driven hydraulic systems, would win the race. Now, mm. as sailors, particularly as around the world race, I think we want to prize something else. I don't think we want to prize the best electro-hydro engineers. They deserve the biggest prize. But I don't think the ocean race is about that. It's about seeing who can solve uh, autopilots, flying systems, and, uh, and flight control mechanisms better than others. I mean, there's another industry for that. And, uh, 
And to a certain extent, you were talking about the, the America's Cup. I think that that's where the America's Cup might have gone a little bit too far. Do you, do I look at these images that are coming out now from New Zealand, you go like, wow, you know, amazing. Yes, I do. I mean, of course, the concept is brilliant. Um, the concept is brilliant. You know, it's, it's extraordinary. Is it the best thing? Is it the best concept uh, for the America's Cup? Uh, well, maybe. I don't know. Uh, but I know, I do know that you can do, you can do a yacht race, uh, a very exciting and very good yacht race that prices the quality of sailors with something that doesn't fundamentally depend on an electro valve or a hydraulic system. I don't know if I kind of explained myself, but that's no, my I, view on uh, it's fascinating, and it's a very, I mean, you know, I know, everybody knows. There's a long debate about in the America's Cup, should we have foils, should we not? Should we allow this system, should we not? And even in the ocean race, should we allow autopilots for the Amokas, should we not? Um, every edition, I'm sure, will get debated and there'll be good steps and there'll be wrong steps. Um, finally, because I, I, I know you've been very kind with your time um, and I don't want to keep you all evening, um, but it's wonderful. It's like being back at university and sort of, you know, learning again for the first time. But for the next edition of the Ocean Race, or at least at the moment with the Amoka fleet, you said that working on those boats is a challenge like none other. Are you getting the sort of satisfaction, the design satisfaction that you craved when you left university in 97? Yeah, I do. No hesitation. And I would say that the design on the Imoka 60s is probably the only or one of the only games left in our sport that will provide you with that satisfaction. I'm pretty sure the guys in the America's Cup are having a really good time. I'm very jealous not to be part of it this time. This is the first America's Cup I'm not part of. Um, but, uh, but uh, you know, to complement the answer to your question, if the present Imoka world would be pushed to um, dependence on electronics, hydraulics, and, and flight controls, such as it had been in the America's Cup, would that excite me as much? I don't think so. Uh, because it just, I think you lose quite a lot of the essence. And I think that the, I think that the winning boat should be the one that has dealt with the, with the aero hydro forces on the one side and the skills of a crew, um, in the other side, the best. It, it's not about electro valves and autopilots. I don't think so. It shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah, it shouldn't be. Um, well, you've made your mark in uh, the ocean races past. Like you say, you've also made your mark on the America's Cup. I await to see whether one of your boats is going to feature as strongly as it has done in the past in the next edition of the ocean race. Uh, Juan, thank you very much for talking to me tonight. Thank you. It was very nice. Thank you very much.